beyond politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. And good afternoon. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK in Los Angeles. We're here every Tuesday at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Really happy that you've joined us again today. Of course, we live stream at kpfk.org for the world and we're podcast forevermore on all platforms. Great show for you today. We're going to talk about the concept of the soul and the idea of awakening the soul and the power in that. Awakening is a term that we're hearing more and more. In fact, even on the right, uh, we hear the idea of being woke used in a political context uh, as if the right is mocking the left for their woke politics. On the right, you have the QAnon people who claim to be awakened or this great awakening that uh, Democrats eat babies and that space lasers are, are, are causing all the forest fires and, and on and on with all these silly QAnon conspiracies. And that's supposed to be woke as well. But the idea of awakening is really ancient. There's a wonderful story in Buddhist philosophy about Gautama Siddhartha coming into a clearing and opening in the forest and... Uh, his countenance is such that he appears to be radiant, and there are some workers there that fall on their face in his presence, and they say, oh, what, my, what what are you? are you? Are you a god? And as the story goes, Buddha says, no, I'm, I'm not a god. And they say, well, certainly you're a, an avatar. You're a great sage. You must be some sort of holy man. And the Buddha says, no, no, actually, I'm none of those things. And so a third shouts out, well, who are you? What are you? And Buddha says, I'm awake. And so the whole idea of awakening to your potential, for example, or awakening to the idea that you're more than this apparently separated being banging around in this world of separated forms and objects, feeling so, again, separated or distinct or maybe even alienated and isolated and and feeling like you don't fit in and you never have. And sometimes I think of that Robert Heinlein story, Stranger in a Strange Land. And I think we all feel that way sometimes, and that can be a hard feeling to shake. But as we awaken to the soul, as we... As, as we become aware of our true potential as spiritual beings, beings of energy, and the intelligence, the insight, and the understanding that's available to us. Uh, that's life-changing in some pretty remarkable ways. And our guest today is going to talk to us about awakening, awakening the soul of power. He's Christian de la Huerta. 
He joins us from Miami in Florida, FLA. And Christian, good afternoon and welcome to KPFK. Hey, Michael. Uh, thanks so much for having me on the show. It's, a, it's an honor to be here. Well, thank you. Uh, it's really a pleasure to talk to you. I've seen some of your work on the Internet. I was watching a bit of an old TED Talk that you did uh, uh, seven or eight years ago on the Internet this morning, and I really enjoyed what you were saying about breath. And you talk about uh, the amygdala hijack. And uh, I guess where I'd like to begin with you is just to find out how you became interested in the brain and how it works in the mind and how does the how do you compare and contrast the mind to the brain and this whole idea of human potential or spiritual potential how did that first grab your interest yeah that's really interesting because as i was listening to you with your um expansive introduction of of today i was thinking that sometimes I feel that, that I really came into this lifetime to master feeling the other, you know, feeling like I was different, like there was something different about me that I didn't fit in. Um, I was born in Cuba and lived there for the first 10 years of my life. And when my parents applied for permission to leave the country, um, seeking freedom and opportunity um, in, you know, in America, um, as soon as you applied to leave, you were labeled gusana, which which meant worm. And up up until that point, my sister and I had always been at the top of the class and gotten awards for that. From that moment on, not only did we, did we no longer get awards, but we wouldn't even get cookies at break. And teachers would actually call us gusanos or, or, or worms. When we came to the States, um, we moved to a small town in Georgia, central Georgia, uh, famous for its psychiatric hospital. My dad was a psychiatrist, which answers one of your questions, perhaps. Um, and that was one of the few places where the Cuban shrinks could practice as they were getting licensed here. So not speaking a word of English, again, felt very different, felt very much the other. Um, and then after three years there and having learned English, having, well, we, you, know, you know how it is for kids, you know, trying desperately to fit in uh, no matter what, even in my case and the case of many others, renouncing or, or trying to get away from some of my background and my heritage uh, and that desperate need to fit in. Then we moved to Miami where I went to um, an all-boy Catholic school that was like 99% Cuban. And so then I stand out again because I sound like a Georgia peach. Um, and so, and not to mention the deeper um, differentness, uh, which was that I already knew, at a young age, I already knew that I was gay. Uh, and, and so that, uh, when you also spoke about this, the feelings of alienation, of feeling like a stranger in a strange land, that was my adolescence. You know, one, one long depression uh, with suicidal fantasies. Um, and, you know, flash forward, that's like today, no matter the circumstances of my life, whether a relationship works out or it doesn't, a project succeeds or it fails, in quotes, I never, ever question my sense of worth. My, 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 my level of self-acceptance and self-love is just established and unshakable. And, and that's part of what drives the work that I do, because I know that if that can happen in me, that it can happen in, in anybody. Well, let me interrupt you there. How do you account for that? Given your circumstances, the story you just told 
some part of you still knew you were not just okay, you were pretty extraordinary, pretty special. How, how, how do you account for that? Well, I didn't know that then. Oh, I thought that's what you said. That no, 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 no. I felt, I felt. Yeah, I guess, I guess that was the assumption of of stranger in a strange land. I, I had no idea that that there was something. I felt different in in a negative way. Like, I, like I just felt like there was something wrong with me. Um, and so, you know, it's, it was a long journey, a long journey of to self acceptance and to self love. Uh, and part of it had to do with trying to reconcile and find a place for myself in 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 the religion in which I was raised. Um, because there was this part of me that always had a sense of mission, a sense of wanting to make a difference, to serve something greater than myself. Uh, and yet, there was you know I was being told in the religion in which I was raised that I was going to burn in hell for eternity, and that I was an abomination in the eyes of God. So I had to to reconcile my my authentic self, my, my sexuality, my spirituality. And finally, at the end of my teens, um, just realized that just that religion didn't have room for me. And like many people just threw out the baby with the baptismal water, uh, wanted nothing to do with spirituality because I confused it with religion. I didn't know then that there were two different things. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think a lot of us can relate to that. I presume you're talking about Catholicism. Yep. Mm -hmm. One of nine kids. Yeah, it could have been uh, any of the fundamentalist Protestant religions as well. But uh, I was raised a Catholic, and, you know, they kept Christ on the crucifix for a long time after Protestants took him down. And so we have to face this suffering object of our love and be told routinely that we're responsible for his suffering because we're so bad. And then I'd go home and I'd get in trouble with my parents and they'd tell me I was bad. And so I got a pretty clear message that, uh, yeah. I, I, you know, I was bad. And uh, there were these veiled messages of redemption in religion, but I was too young to understand what any of that meant. Yeah. For me, it was psychedelic experiences in college, frankly, that yeah. lifted my lid. And yeah. then I took another look at what Christ was saying and contrasted it to Eastern philosophy. Did you go through a similar rediscovery yeah. of spirituality? Yep, yeah. uh, very similar to yours. I Right after high school, I actually you know, thought I wanted to be a priest in high school. And I think part of it was a legitimate, what they call a vocation. And I also think that in those days, I naively believed that priests were celibate. So for me, that I think subconsciously, I thought it was a way to sublimate my sexuality, a way that I didn't have to deal with it. Uh, so, you know, started college. So I actually had a meeting with the head of the novitiate, the guy who decided who got in and who didn't. Thankfully, he was a wise guy, who, a wise man who said, uh, why don't you do a couple of years at college and then we'll talk. And so in those couple of years, uh, three things happened. One was I took a, a class, a philosophy class in existentialism, which began a process of questioning the Catholic worldview, which was the only thing that I knew. Um, secondly, I, I had a face like you of exper experimenting with mind-expanding substances, which deepened that process of questioning and expanded it to questioning reality as I, as I understood it. And then the third thing that happened was that I fell in love. And I'd had, you know, 
plenty of sex as a teenager, uh, probably more than a teenager should have had. But it was always dark and hidden and guilt ridden. And it was a dark secret that nobody knew about. And so when I, when I fell in love, it's like, after, I remember the exact moment, the, f the first kiss were in, were in that moment. I just knew. Like there wasn't, after that time, there wasn't anybody, like no psychiatrist, no priest, no minister, no rabbi. Nobody could tell me that, that it was wrong, that it was sinful, because it was so beautiful that I just knew in the cells of my body that it couldn't be wrong. And so the three, combination of those three things was very powerful. After that, the Jesuits didn't stand a chance. You said your dad, your father, was a psychiatrist. When did you come out to him, and how did that go? Or to your, both of your parents, and how did that go? That's an interesting question. Um, I had started it, so my late, my, my late 20s, I, I, I went on a spiritual journey. You know, I just realized that through most of my 20s, I'd thrown out too much away with a spiritual bathwater. And so I, like you, I started to turn east and, and look for other uh, possible ways of, of understanding and experiencing and connecting with that. Um, and so I very quickly, I started teaching, like I had, I had this very profound experience. First time I did breath work and then I started understanding what the ego mind was, which was just blew me away. And it blew me away that I hadn't understood that having a psychiatrist dad and that I hadn't gotten that understanding from any psychology teacher in college. And with those two things, like everything changed. So once I started teaching, which happened very quickly, um, you know, I realized that there I was teaching people how to be authentic, uh, how to live, you know, based in radical truth. Um, and, and the price that is paid when we don't do that, when, when we withhold the communication. And I realized that I, I wasn't out to my parents. I was out to my siblings, to my close friends, but I'd never really felt the need to come out to my parents. Um, and I think part of it was probably rationalizing that that I didn't want to cause them any more pain or confusion, and that if you get them a, a shot of sodium pentothal, they would probably know. That part is true, but I think it's also true that I was probably just avoiding the difficulty of, of the conversation. So um, I was living in Hawaii at the time, and I wrote them a letter, came out to them, and um, my dad wrote back a couple of weeks later, and first paragraph, like, really blew me away because he was very traditional, very Freudian in his approach to psychiatry and he was so catholic and so he said you know something to the effect of you'll always be our son you'll always have a home here and then he put on his little shrink hat and said something to the effect of however i encourage you to choose another lifestyle uh, because it's a very difficult lifestyle and, and i know because i've worked with many homosexuals and i've cured many homosexuals oh my um, yeah, that little does he know that at least two or three of those I, I was with post-cure um, because, you know, after we did our thing, he goes, oh, are you related to so-and-so? And I said, yeah, yeah, that was my dad. And they said, oh, I used to go to him. <laughs> the idea that it's a lifestyle is uh, presumably we've dealt with that by now. I mean, every gay person I know has said, oh, my God, I was five years old when I yeah, yeah, that it's a choice. Like, why would I have chosen that? Why would I have chosen such pain and alienation <laughs> had I had a choice? <laughs> well, you know, uh, so much of the discrimination against gay people is rooted in these religious injunctions and this idea that uh, 
God would not make people gay or trans or fluid in their gender or sexuality in any way. And uh, why not? I mean, it's just sometimes I think we need to remind ourselves that while there's extraordinary value in reading ancient holy books, there's a lot of truth and a lot of wisdom. We also have to remember that many of these books are written when people thought that the stars were heaven shining through holes in the sky and that the sun revolved around the earth. And Yeah. And when we, women weren't even human because they were property. Yeah. So we forget that this is Abrahamic religion, but also the the Vedas and the Eastern philosophies are so old that in some cases, especially in the East, they, they predate writing. They're oral traditions that were handed down. And this is Bronze Age material. So I think we can look at it for the wisdom that is clearly, clearly there, but also allow for the fact that we're humans and, and we're often confused. So we need to sort of cherry pick our way through that stuff, don't you think? Oh my God, yes. And not to mention how many times that stuff was translated and retranslated and mistranslated and certainly taken out of their cultural and historical context. Um, and, you know, I wrote a book 20 years ago called Coming Out Spiritually, which, which kind of turned that upside down because it's really sad to me that so many people in the LGBTQ community want nothing to do with spirituality. And no wonder, like I get it because we confuse it with religion like I used to. And no wonder, given the treatment that we have received um, and continue to receive in some cases at the, at the hands of most religions. But the theme of the book is that what's sad and ironic about that is that before the patriarchal times and cultures, people that we today would call LGBTQ um, were not only spiritually inclined, but were actually honored and, and revered in some cases for, for the roles of spiritual service and leadership that we played all over the planet. I have a friend, uh, Andrew Harvey, who wrote a book about gay mystics. Yep. And there were a bunch of them, no question about it. Yep, I know Andrew. Listen, um, breathwork is what we're here to talk about primarily. How did you find out about the power in breath? You know, it was, it was the type of thing that right around that time, um, I was when I was starting to, to look eastward, I was sitting by the pool reading something metaphysical, something Eastern-based, and somebody who lived in the building saw, came down and sat next to me, saw what I was reading. So we started talking, and he told me about breathwork, and it was one of those moments where instantaneously I said, yep, I want to do it, and tell me when and how much. And the very first session I, I had changed my life. Like I knew that I would never be the same. And, and it was a combination of what you were talking about in the introduction is like, like I had an experience of myself, not as this isolated, separate individual, you know, one of 7 billion. Well, I guess it wasn't that many then, I don't know, five or 6 billion, however many of us were there then, um, ant on this tiny pebble hurtling through space at thousands of miles per hour. But I saw and felt what I'd read about about the interconne interconnectedness of it all. But one thing is reading about it. Another one is having an experience of it. And, and so I knew 
that I had to do it again. I knew I had to make it available to others. And within six months of that, I'd quit my job. I never went for the PhD in psychology. I was on a track to do that. And within like just those few months, I, I quit my job and sold my condo and broke up with my partner at the time, gave away most of my belongings and um, went on a spiritual journey. Well, went on a spiritual journey, that's a big opening. I mean, where do you begin? What <laughs> Did you do this fellow's workshop? Was that it? Was it a book you read? Uh, well, he was, he was a student of this woman that I studied with, and she's the one from whom I learned breathwork and learned how to facilitate it. And she's also the one from whom I got this understanding of the ego mind that I had just never known about before um, and how it keeps us in, in a self-made prison of, of limitation and fear and victimization and projection and judgment and, and all that kind of stuff. And the thing about the breathwork is I've, I've yet to come across anything that heals as quickly and that's and as many levels that not only does I don't know anything more effective in terms of healing past trauma, and not only does it do that, but it but it heals mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and even physically. And and yes, I know that sounds too good to be true. To the more logical, scientific, more skeptical part of me, even thirty years later of saying that, it still sounds too good to be true. But I can't argue with the results. It works, and it works fast. Well. I want to find out if it's the breath or the breathing, and I'll ask you about. I'll ask you to break that down a little bit on the other side of this break. You're listening to Christian De La Huerta. He's the author of Awakening the Soul of Power, and uh, he's a facilitator of workshops and events. And, and my name is Michael Benner, and you've stumbled on the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School here on KPFK, and We'll be right back after this. KPFK regularly takes you behind the headlines and gives you vivid stories of real people that put the news into context. These human stories make what's going on in places that may be far away vivid and real. And not just a collection of sound bites. It is painstaking and laborious work, and it is not cheap. Ultimately, it costs thousands of dollars to make a single hour of radio when you consider all of the factors that go into it. The way we pay for it here at KPFK is the fairest, most straight-ahead, and democratic method in the world. Listeners who value what they hear each pitch in a little money. It's that simple. Please consider how much you value KPFK and go to kpfk.org slash donate and pledge accordingly. Or call us now at 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-KPFK. Thank you. And we're back with my guest, Christian De La Huerta from Miami, who is the author of Awakening the Soul of Power. We're talking about, or we've just begun to talk about breathwork. Christian, the power of breathwork, which becomes quickly evident to anyone who begins to learn about it or practice it, is it something in the breath, in the air, some prana, some energy, or is it the process of breathing or a little bit of both? I mean, what do you think is going on here? Is that is that a trick, chicken or the egg question? Uh, don't make it too binary. There's a middle, I'm sure. <laughs> Um, you know, I don't, I don't think we really know yet how it works. Uh, the science isn't there. 
like like they've they've done so much research on meditation and what happens in the brain, what happens in the body, the benefits in terms of health, even in terms of productivity at work. That's been studied really really well. They're they're just now starting to do the same with breath work. So you know, so here's how how I understand how it works. One of them is is the prana, the life force. When we breathe in this circular connected way, we're like imbuing our body with with the intelligence of life that animates all of life in, in creation called prana or chi or ki. And so that intelligence courses through the body, through the meridians, which now we do have scientific evidence for the, the, the couple of years ago, they did prove the existence of energy channels in the body and, and, and it clears places where we have stored past trauma and where we have stored suppressed emotions. Because what used to be spiritual teaching that everything is energy, now we know from physics, from quantum physics, that it's true. Everything is energy. Energy can't be, can't be destroyed. So just because we weren't able to, to deal with something that happened when we were young, or just because we suppressed emotions for the variety, variety of reasons that we do so, that stuff doesn't go away. We can't sweep it under the rug. It's, it's, it's suppressed into the subconscious. It's lodged into tissues of the body, and it's still having an impact on the quality of our lives and, and the quality of our relationships. And, and that's one of the, 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 the miracles, for lack of another word, of breath work, is that it clears that stuff, um, and, and that it happens so quickly, that change and transformation happens so quickly. The other part of it that I find really interesting in understanding how this works, and maybe it answers your question, is that if we look at most spiritual traditions in the world, and even some secular languages, the same word, one word, can mean spirit or breath, depending on context, depending on what we're talking about. So, so for example, from the, from the ancient Greek pneuma, from which we get pneumonia, that word meant both lung and soul. From the Latin spirare, we get both respiration and inspiration or expiration. So, you know, sorry that I don't have a, a more scientific explanation to how it works, but that's more of a psycho-spiritual understanding. In my mind, that's what what allows me to understand how it can work so profoundly and so powerfully and so quickly and, and take us to some of the same places that, by the way, that people, I often have people tell me, you know, I've been sitting on in a meditation cushion for 20, 30 years to have that moment of no mind. It's, it's, not a, it's, it's not saying that it replaces meditation practice. There are countless benefits of doing that, for, for, for doing that regularly. Um, and, and also people often say, I got to the same place that I did on a, on a sacred medicine journey, a psychedelic journey that we were talking about before, just by using the breath. Years ago, I'm talking 40 years ago or more, there was a transformational process called rebirthing. Yep. And I don't know what happened to it, why it fell out of favor, or maybe the name got changed. Yep. But that was all about breath. and That's it. That's, that's what I trained it. In rebirthing. In rebirthing. A lot of, a lot of, there's some small number of people who still call it that, but I stopped calling it that a long time ago because it confuses people. You know, it's, it makes people, you know, a lot of people think of being born again, um, they call it rebirthing because a lot of people in releasing trauma relive and, rele and release the trauma of birth, you know, which that process is traumatic for everybody involved. Um, and so, but, but it creates that expectation that you have to have that experience, which is it's nice. It, it's good if it happens. It's great if it happens. You kind of get a, an opportunity to reset, to reboot. 
Um, and it's not necessary that you have a conscious memory of, of reliving, of going through the birth canal again. Well, I've worked for years with hypnotherapy. As a hypnotherapist, I can tell you that beside the idea of regressing to a particular age to address a trauma, there is sort of a free-form regression where you guide the subject to the point of a particular trauma, wherever it may be. And they often land in being born. They often touch down in being born. And many of their issues have to do with not bonding properly with the mother, being taken away immediately. And that's different now. Most hospitals, the baby is put on the mother's tummy and has to find the breast, and that's allowed for, and it's referred to as bonding, and it's pretty well accepted and understood. But um, a lot of us, when we were babies, we were whisked off to rooms of bright light and chrome tables, and we were cold, and they didn't put caps on our heads or swaddle us in blankets, and yeah, yeah, often left alone in incubators, and yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, some some of us even grabbed upside down by the feet and smacked on the butt. There you go, that too. Yeah, and 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 drugged because yeah, mom had some pain killing drugs. What a horrifying experience to be introduced to the physical <laughs> plane. <laughs> yes. To to leave the the warmth and the safety of of that womb like dark, uh, you know, where you're held and surrounded. Um, and suddenly you're like yanked out and like bright lights and bright sounds and yikes. Now you talk about breathing. That's when the first breath, the umbilical cord is cut. And that, that first breath, welcome to the world, right? Yeah. So I'm intrigued by the fact that you mentioned that the word spirit is rooted in breath. That's what esprit is. It's, you said inspire, expire, also conspire to breathe with. These words all mean breath. In Hawaii, aloha yeah. is the breath. The ha is the breath of God. Yeah, yeah. And what's interesting, too, is that I'm sure you know the word haole, which is kind of a derogatory term for, for white people, uh, literally means no breath. <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Well, um, so again, this one could also argue as an aside that um, in Genesis, where it talks about in the beginning there was the word. The word is a breath. You have to you have to breathe to speak. So maybe it's an allegory. Maybe it's not an allegory. Maybe we're talking about the life force contained, besides the oxygen and the other gases in the air that we breathe, perhaps there is a prana or a life force. But in any event, talk to us about what happens when we become frightened or angry. What do we do with our breathing then? Well, we know that when we get upset or fearful, it's that's the first thing that goes. We stop breathing or our breath becomes really shallow. And, and that's what anchors the, that's what anchors those traumas in the body. So if, 
anybody from the audience that's listening, if you can develop that awareness, because it all begins with awareness. We can't do anything about what we can't see or know about. So once, if you start paying attention to your patterns of breathing, like when you start getting upset, if you're stuck in traffic and you start getting frustrated, um, or you're about to, to get, get into an argument with somebody and you feel that, that, that blood rising, um, just slow down the breath, right? Take a deep breath so that those strong, powerful energies don't get anchored, so that we're giving them expression. That, that, like we were saying before, that the emotions are just energies. So if we just allow them to flow through us, um, and, and I know that you that you that your TEDx talk is about emotional quotient and uh, EQ, and so I know that you are very aware of the importance of being aware of the emotions. Uh, so, so when if we're able to do that, then those emotions don't get stuck in us. And and it's really tragic that we've been so conditioned. Like I don't know who had the bright idea that the emotions were weakness, uh, and especially men. You know, we were since we were kids. That's been driven into us. Little boys don't cry. Why? Because only little girls cry, and that's weakness. Whereas the the very premise is messed up. The very premise is false. Like, if you want to talk power, if you want to talk courage, if you want to talk strength, let's talk about the power of creation that resides in in a female body. Um, And I'm not going to do it justice because there's only one Betty White, but I read something or heard something that one time she was being interviewed and somebody said something about having balls and... Um, she said, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. How, what about this connection? Like, I didn't understand why, why that connection between balls and courage came about. You thump those little things and the guy collapses over, bends over in, in, in pain. You want to talk courage? You want to talk strength? Let's, let's talk vaginas. Those things take a pounding. <laughs> That's very funny. Uh, it seems every naked and afraid episode I've ever seen, it's the guy, the big, strong guy that bails on day two and the woman that stays for 19 more days all by herself and toughs it out. Uh, I think men are good in the short uh, run, the sprint, but when it comes to endurance, strength is endurance. Um, that's where women generally, I think, find their strength and their power. But... It's not a competition. We're talking about different forms of expression, and we're generalizing with that. But yes, yeah, it's, it's not to put down men. Of course, it's just to begin to question and begin to shake yeah. up this this mis- misunderstanding that the yeah. female, the, the feminine, is weak because that's just not true. Yeah, my football coach used to call us uh, girls, and. Uh, he saw that as motivation if he would anger us. And he'd say, all right, ladies, don't wrinkle your pretty little party dresses now. And that was supposed to make us strong and tough and mean and better football players, I guess. I hated it. I hated the whole thing. Yeah, me too. Breath for me has been used primarily as a way of relaxing, yeah. shedding tension. And I think of myself as pulling in strength and power when I inhale. And when I exhale, Christian, ah, I send that breath to an area of concern, to an area in my body that feels tight or that I know is prone to tightening Mm. when I resist something in my life, whether it's a feeling or an event or circumstance or an individual who's upsetting me. (laughs) 
I send the breath into that area of my body, and then I use that to facilitate a letting go feeling. Yeah. If instead of avoiding that feeling or running away from it because it's uncomfortable, I allow myself to move into that discomfort and through it, I find liberation and freedom as well as some insight and understanding from that process. So for me, breathwork is sort of a uh, part of a larger facilitation. Now, I know you do uh, seminars and such, or at least did before COVID, and I'm sure you'll begin to do those again. Uh, how do you approach breathing initially when you do a retreat? Well, when I do a weekend retreat, and you're right, I haven't been able to do them in a year and a half, um, they all include breathwork. Like, so no matter what the theme of the retreat is, whether it's personal empowerment or, or women's empowerment specifically, or having relationships that can actually work, like conscious relationships, uh, life purpose, living heroically, no matter what the theme is, I always include breathwork because, again, I don't know anything that works as quickly in, in um, clearing just that old stuff that we we don't that we're ready to release and that too that we have outgrown and are, are ready to shed like a like a snakeskin that can no longer contain us. It, it just works and it works fast, um, and it's so connected to the conversation about the emotions, which is connected to the to the conversation about power that I write about in this book, um, the awakening the soul of power. It's because you know most of us have an ambivalent relationship to power part of us wants it part of us is afraid of it and i the more that i work with people in this area what i realize is that what we're afraid of is that if we really stepped into all of our potential into all of our power if we really bead who we are to the fullest that we fear that other people couldn't handle us and that we might end up alone um, we also fear that we might abuse it and cause harm to our relationships and no wonder like all, all we gotta do is turn on the news on any given day to witness at least one abuse of power, not to mention the innumerable ones of, of the previous administration, um, countless, mind-blowing. Uh, and so add to that the fact that we've been conditioned to believe that power is a bad thing, you know, with quotes like power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. What they forgot to tell us about that quote is that Lord Acton was speaking specifically about political power, not personal power. And so when you add to the mix what we were saying about the emotions, that we've been conditioned to fear them and to run away from them um, and, and to, to not feel and to numb out in all the creative ways that we numb ourselves out, to run away from, our, from, from those feelings that you're talking about, that, that, you know, when we put all that together into a mix, what happens is that we end up selling out on our power. We end up saying yes, but inside we feel no. Um, we end up playing small and we end up settling for less we end up, because what we're settling for is, it's kind of lame and kind of sad. It's, it's for an illusion of security, for uh, a false sense of security. I mean, a false sense of acceptance and, and for morsels, for crumbs of pseudo love. And, and so what this book talks about how that is that there is a different way that we can step into, into power that doesn't have to be about domination, force, fear, control, that doesn't require that we abuse anybody, that we push anybody down, step on them, put our knee to their neck in order for us to prop ourselves up and feel powerful. There's a different way to do that that is congruent, that is a match for who we are, for the goodness in our authentic um, uh, core. Breathing 
and the relaxation that accompanies it melts the barriers, the walls that separate us, creates a sense of merging, awakens us to the truth of interconnection and harmony, uh, even unity, if I can use that word, because there is a paradox. Each of us is unique, and yet we're part of one energy field, some ocean, universal ocean of energy or spirit. So we have to deal with that paradox, the one and the many. Both things are true, but the separate part is obvious. The connected part is less apparent. And in breathing and relaxing and letting go and allowing myself to feel vulnerable, you begin to discover this power. And I, like you, were explaining, worried that that was going to make me egotistical. That if I discovered my true potential, that I'd be arrogant and pompous and then nobody would like me. And after all, that's what I was looking for was approval and acceptance. And, but what I found was exactly the opposite. Uh, the more I know the truth of who I am, the more humble I am. Yes. And there's a part of me that says, well, it's immodest to say you're humble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, you've, you've got this egoic nature that argues with every revelation you get. <laughs> Uh, it just does not want to share its power. Or I guess it, the ego is afraid it won't exist if you discover you're really a wave on yes. this ocean of energy. I think that's it. Expand on that. Well, I, mean, I think it's what's called the shamanic death, you know, which it's, a, it's in a lot of literature, not only about in sacred medicine work, but, but just ancient literature about shamanic work. Um, and, and so, you know, that goes back to understanding what the ego is. There's so much misunderstanding about what the ego is. Um, and we don't have time to get into it here. That, but that's why I devote the first quarter of the book is to understanding that, because that is the, the, the answer to all of our problems. Um, understanding what, how that part of us limits us and keeps us in, in a self-made prison um, so that we can let ourselves out. But here's a quick visual. If you put a baseball in the center of a stadium, that's what the ego is, who we are is actually the stadium. And we've allowed this tiny, tiny, tiny part of who we are to think that it is all who we are. And, and the sad part is that we make really important, critical, consequential choices about our lives, what we do with them, about our relationships, from its very limited and always fear-based perspective. So that is the importance of understanding how the little baseball works, so that we can begin to disidentify with it and re-identify with our authentic self, which is that stadium that doesn't feel separate, that doesn't require validation, and that feels that interconnectedness with everything else. It's like, you know, call it whatever you want to call it. You know, I, 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 think, to, I think of it as experiencing our own piece of sacred real estate that individuates as each one of us and so we have this experience of, of illusion of separation uh, for X period of time that we're embodied uh, before we go back to that sense of unity and oneness that you were talking about. And so part of the excitement and what's possible in this journey of embodiment is, is like 
understanding both, right? Right. That we are both, that we can have moments of baseball and that we can have moments while in body of that stadium, unity consciousness and, and interconnectedness with it all. And once we get that, like it's a game changer. As you know. Yeah, this is so important. And uh, when I find myself feeling pessimistic because I watched or read too much news <laughs> and it's also government centric, right? It's hard to find real news about what's happening in the world and things that are not political that as a journalist, I used to write about every day and now it's just this daily drumbeat of what's happening in Washington, D.C., or occasionally in state legislatures, as if everything is government and politics. And then we've already touched on religion. I think sometimes one of the reasons that politics and religion are so emotionally evocative is that these are two areas that we know the least about. Yeah, and we've been conditioned to think, oh, you you avoid those because that's possibility of conflict. So those are the things that they warn us about. You you stay away from those subjects. So what we don't understand, we fear. Yeah, exactly. And fear creates muscular tension. Yeah. And then we stop breathing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the downward spiral, right? It's all about the breath, ultimately. It's all about the breath. And, and the breath, as we know, it's our, it's our most loyal, our most faithful companion on this journey of embodiment. And so it, be, it, it behooves us to, to deepen our understanding and experience of what that is and, and the power of the breath. Besides uh, reading your book and checking you out on the Internet, do you have a quick uh, technique that you can share with our listeners about what they could do the minute this program is over to experience the feeling of relaxation and receptivity that comes from breathing. You have a quick little intro. Yes. You know, it's, it's, it's like I said earlier, it's the first step towards self-acceptance and then self-love is self-awareness. So anything that we can do to, to understand who we are, what makes us do the things we do, what are our triggers, what situations do we tend to give our power away, do we tend to give our power away in relationships that are more of an intimate, romantic, sexual nature, or do we tend to give our power away in, uh, with authority figures, parental figures, bosses, uh, religious leaders, uh, coaches, that kind of thing. Like I said before, we can't do anything about what we don't see. So the first step is self-awareness. So here's a 60-second practice that you can set set a timer on your phone, and you can do it on the hour, you can do it once a day, you get to choose that. But when the timer goes off, stop whatever you're doing. Like, like get up, turn away from the computer screen. And for 60 seconds, you just be, right? You're not going to do anything. You're just going to observe yourself, and you're going to like look around and, and notice what's coming in through your senses. What are, you, what are you seeing? What are you hearing? What are you smelling? Is there a breeze that's, that's caressing your skin from the air conditioning or if you're outside from the wind? And, and then start going inward. What kind of thoughts are running through you? But rather than jumping on the bandwagon of that thought, just like observing it. Like, like kind of imagining we're standing at a, at a train station and we're just observing the trains come in and just letting them go right back out, right? The same thing with the thoughts. We stand in center for those 60 seconds and we just observe the thoughts 
We can get back to them later if we want to. We observe the emotions. Like, I just notice it. No, not judging, not evaluating, not letting them suck us into a whole storyline. Just notice it. That alone, if you do that once a day, several times a day, that alone is a game changer. Christian, your book is Awakening the Soul of Power, Christian de la Huerta. Uh, how do folks find out more information about you? I'm sure you have a website people can go to. Yes, I do. Thanks so much for asking that, Michael. The website is soulfulpower.com. And for your audience, um, if they go to that website, soulfulpower.com, and they get on my email list, and we know how easy it is to click unsubscribe at any point if it doesn't work for you. But just by getting on my email list, they will receive a short chapter from the book um, on what it means to live a heroic life in the 21st century. They'll get some power practices that are designed to apply the teachings and the concepts to our own lives, right? So that it, they don't, so that the teachings don't stay at the level of information. We don't need more information. We've got information overload. What we need is transformation. And so that's what those teachings are designed to do. And, and then they will also get a, a short recorded teaching and a guided meditation about trust, um, which I think comes in so helpful during these, uh, times of chaos and fear and uncertainty and all that's free all of it is free awesome christian thank you boy it's it's been great meeting you and chatting with you and i hope we can do it again um we're on a we're on a uh, a run here <laughs> in this program <laughs> one of the hidden benefits of covid is instead of waiting for people like you to be in Los Angeles so I can interview you in studio, I'm able to talk to people wherever they are in the world. And, uh, boy, that's really allowed me to bring in some really wonderful guests week after week after week. And you're one of them, and I've really enjoyed the show today. And so uh, down the calendar page, we'll reprise this for sure, okay? Thank you, Michael, and thank you so much for saying that. It's, it's, I love the conversation. I love the connection. I know you and I could talk for hours and not run out of stuff, just go from one fascinating subject to the next. And so, yeah, I would be honored to, to be on the show again, and I hope that one day we can do it in person. I, I miss my beloved California, so I look forward to, to um, being able to travel and visit there again. Holding that vision, for sure. Thank you, Christian. Thank you. This is the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK, and I'll have more right after this. The Car Show has aired on KPFK since 1973. And perhaps you have a car that's been sitting in your driveway since 1973. Or 1993. Or maybe you're still driving it, but it's time to say goodbye. Get rid of that thing and help KPFK at the same time. Your donation of your old car gets it out of your life and helps KPFK as a tax-deductible donation. And not just cars, trucks, boats, and motorcycles are also welcome. It's easy. Just call 877-KPFK-AUTO and we'll handle all the details. Let your old car help KPFK. And we're back to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK in Los Angeles. I've just got, uh, what, seven minutes or so here. So uh, I want to take this time to thank all of you who have made a pledge, a contribution, or a donation to KPFK during this most recent fund drive. We're about to wrap it up now, although I'll always be appealing to you to support this radio station because the need is continual. 
24-7-365, we do not accept corporate money. And we don't even get money from the government, Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Those monies are not available to us. 90% of our money comes from folks just like you. And yet only one in 10 of our listeners, really 10% or less, of those of you who are listening right now, ever make a pledge or a contribution to this radio station. And what are we asking? You know, if you go to kpfk.org slash donate and then mouse over support KPFK and drop down to sustainer circle, you'll see the opportunity to click on $5. You could donate $5 a year to KPFK, $25 a year, and you're a member of KPFK. You're a voting member. You can vote for station board officers. You can run for the local station board if you qualify for as little as $25 once a year. But what if you donated, and this is the whole idea of the sustainer circle, every month just 5 or 10 bucks? I know you can afford that. I, I, you're not even going to miss it. And the point is, you're invisible. You can hear me, but I cannot hear you unless you go to the website and say, I'm going to contribute to this fine radio station. Because I don't know of anywhere else, or better said, because you realize there is nowhere else to get information that's this intelligent and progressive and consistently reflecting the diversity and the free speech that is essential to a democracy. Especially in these dark times where so many of our neighbors are living in a fact-free universe. Reading is down by 25%. People don't read. I was on a Zoom call today where people were you know, sort of laughing and crying at the same time about the horrible English that people use. How, how often people say, I could care less, when they mean I couldn't care less, I could not care less. But it seems most people say, I could care less. They make up words, they use phrases they don't understand, because people aren't reading. And it's heartbreaking, because what it reflects is a lack of understanding, an incredibly short attention span that prevents people from sitting quietly with their thoughts and with their feelings. Oh, this goes way beyond politics. This period that we find ourselves in is much darker and much more dangerous than anything political. And when you turn to the news, I mean, I'm a journalist by trade. That's what I graduated college with a degree in broadcasting and a minor in journalism. And for years, that's what I did. I wrote news, and news could be about all manner of things, some of which was about government and politics. But now, with cable TV 24-7, that's all you hear is government and politics, such that we don't have very, very much information at all about what's happening in the world. The whole world burns down around us, and we have no idea. Think of how little information we get from mainstream media 
about events that impact you in the world, starting with climate change. There's no place else to get intelligent information on a wide variety of interlocking subjects, like the ecology. I know of nowhere other than KPFK to get information about politics, about government, about peace, about social justice, from a diverse perspective of women and men that represent cultures from all around the world, entertainment as well, some world music, all kinds of music that you can't hear on the radio and have to dig deeply into the internet to even find, already put together and presented to you, in each case, the entertainment, the news, the information, programs like this about personal and spiritual development, brought to you by dedicated people who devote hours and hours of their time every week to bringing you this information. And what are we asking? Five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month? Can you come up with $25 a month? That's all we're asking. And if you're doing that now, thank you, thank you, thank you. And if you haven't been, if you've missed the opportunity, if for some reason you just don't get it, how important it is for you to be part of the 10% of our listeners who feel the obligation and, and honor and respect that obligation to support what supports you then step up, be part of that 10%. Let's make it 12% of our listeners who are contributing to this radio station. Let's make it 15 or 20%. Wouldn't that be crazy if we doubled to 20% the number of our listeners who contribute anything at all, $5 a month, $15, $25 a month, $25 once a year, that's 50 cents a week. You can do that. <laughs> you can do that, and you can do it in minutes by calling 818-985-5735. That's 985-KPFK in the 818 area code. Or more simply, and actually I think more efficiently, point your browser to kpfk.org forward slash donate. Mouse over in the banner where it says support KPFK. You'll see a drop-down menu go to Sustainer's Circle. Set it and forget it. And every month, your donation will go to KPFK. $5 a month, $15 a month, $25 a month or more. Whatever you can afford, whatever your conscience dictates. Thanks for being with us today. Make it a point to join us every Tuesday at 1 o'clock for the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 KPFK in Los Angeles. As always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. This is Michael Benner. So long.